the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you will also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Samuel Goldman with us today. Professor Goldman is an associate professor of political science at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and the executive director of the John L. Loeb Jr. Institute for Religious Freedom and director of the George Washington Politics and Values Program. He's the author of a timely and well-received new book, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. Samuel Goldman, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you for having me. Samuel Goldman, please tell us how you conceived of the notion for this book. What are you seeking to convey and who is your audience? So I wrote the book uh, as the idea of national nationalism um, was being revived and rehabilitated about five years ago in the wake of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. Um, and although I understood the motives for that effort and agreed with some of the arguments that were made about particular policies, um, I also had the feeling that some of the ways that the concept of nation and nationalism were being used were a better fit uh, for classical European nation states than for uh, for our country, for the United States of America. So in the book, uh, I set out to think through uh, questions of what kind of nation uh, this country is and what that means for the best way to respond to our current problems. Well, your timing is certainly good and has only got better. You turn very effectively in your book in a highly readable way to point out that it was always a challenge throughout American history to create or conjure a single national identity. And you laid out three useful categories, covenantal, I may not have said that right, but based on the initial covenant, easier to read than say, at least for me, crucible and creedal. Would you please explain this and help us understand your vision? Yeah, so what I describe as covenantal nationalism is based on an adaptation of the biblical narrative of the people of Israel um, as a nation chosen by God and appointed a, a particular place in the world, a, a land in which they are to set up uh, a state. And this is a narrative that was familiar to most of the uh, British settlers of what would become the United States, but was particularly important to the Pilgrim and Puritan settlers of New England. 
um, and through the 18th century, um, they nationalized that that story in certain ways. Originally, it was understood to refer only to New England. Later, it became a way of understanding uh, the whole 13 colonies and eventually the whole American Republic. Um, and although I think there's a lot that's that's admirable in that vision, it turned out to be too religiously, culturally, and politically narrow to make sense of the country as a whole. Um, the story of of uh, Plymouth Rock and the settlement New England of New England even in the 18th century, um, was a very particular regional story that was not accepted everywhere. Um, and in the, the early Republic, uh, I think the limitations of that vision became overwhelming. And it was often replaced by a different understanding um, of Americans as a people derived from different origins, uh, participating in different religious traditions, and in other ways distinct from each other, um, but with the hope that over time and through shared experience in the future, they would become a coherent nation comparable to the great nations of Europe. And this is what I call um, the, the crucible, um, which is just a fancy way of saying melting pot, but I wanted the alliteration of creed, of covenant, crucible, and, and creed. Um, and even though we tend to associate that vision with a later period, uh, the late 19th or early 20th century and the port cities of the East Coast, it really emerged in the early 19th century and was associated with the frontier and Western expansion and was closely related to the idea that through cultivating the soil, uh, a, new, a new people, a new nation would, would spring up. Um, but as with the covenant, that was a limited vision. Um, it could be expanded to include um, immigrants, particularly immigrants um, from Northern Europe, uh, even though they were neither of English origin nor uh, Protestant in many cases. But it tended to exclude, or at least it was questionable, whether it could accommodate um, immigrants from uh, other parts of the world, especially the Southern and Eastern Europeans who began to arrive following the Civil War. Um, and the boundaries of, of the crucible uh, were even more striking when it came to a non-immigrant population, to African-Americans who were mostly the descendants of slaves. Um, and in that case, it was feared that even the slightest admixture of what was seen as corrupt and alien blood, uh, this, this rhetoric is associated with what became known as the one drop rule, would corrupt the whole concoction. And I, I think that by the early 20th century, the, the hope that uh, immigrants and non-immigrants, uh, Americans of different origins would give up their particularities and all become the same kind of people um, were essentially uh, abandoned. And that led to a, a third conception of American national identity, which is the one that I think most of us today are still most familiar with, that I call the creed. And the creed is the idea that we may look different, uh, we may have different religions or different cultural practices, 
Um, but nevertheless, we are all Americans. And the reason that we are Americans is that we share a commitment to certain political and moral values expressed in the Declaration of Independence and other founding documents. And although uh, obviously that idea is not altogether new, um, I've traced it back to the Declaration in the 18th century. It was really in the middle of the 20th century, um, particularly in association with the Second World War, that that idea was institutionalized and became something like the default understanding of what it means to be American, um, that in some ways it remains today. Is it fair to say these three classifications as you lay them out, are not entirely separate, but they intersect in some way, or they're cumulative, or how do you take that apart? Yeah, I, I, I think um, that in the book, I, I may actually have given the wrong impression um, because I, I set them up chronologically, and that suggests that there's a sort of neat progression from one to the other. But that's not quite right. I, I think of them more um, as being sort of layered so that they're always present, but they're overlaid on each other um, and not entirely visible. So if you think of an archeological dig where the deeper you dig, uh, you, you reveal different, different strata of previous settlement. Um, that might be a more apt metaphor than a sort of neat separation between them, because we still do, uh, both in political rhetoric and in, in cultural activity, um, appeal to all of these ideals uh, without separating them sharply. So let's go back to the covenant, the first ideal. And one thinks of, for example, President Kennedy and President Reagan, both of whom made the city on a hill a landmark in their presentation of their vision and their national vision in the past half century. And one also thinks about, in your presentation of the covenant, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence that really seem to be built on Judeo-Christian notions of individual sovereignty, built on the fact that people are all ultimately and this is not a religious argument I'm making, but I'm trying to observe it, that people are ultimately all in the image of God and should be dealt with in this ultimate equality. And that latter I raise because it almost seems especially relevant again now when people are subdividing into ever greater numbers of identities underneath the American umbrella. How do you respond to that or think about it? Well, I think that both Reagan and Kennedy's use of this covenantal imagery is, is a good example um, of how these symbols can be combined and modified. So even though um, Kennedy did appeal to um, the Puritan leader John Winthrop's phase, um, uh, city, city Upon a Hill, um, he used it in his um, uh, farewell address to the state of Massachusetts before um, taking office as president. And then Reagan used it uh, frequently um, throughout his career. But neither of them meant by it quite what uh, the, the Puritans of the 17th century or even the New England uh, patriots of the 18th century meant by it. For those 
people in the more original sense, it was much more a claim about collective responsibility before God. And it was associated with a famously rigorous understanding of religious orthodoxy. Um, one of the interesting features of Puritan culture that I learned about uh, while writing the book is that in order uh, to be a full member of the Puritan churches, uh, you had to make a, a public confession of faith, and you could actually be interrogated by the elders of the community to make sure that you were that you were sincere, that you weren't just um, that you weren't just faking it. And for the Puritans, that was not a metaphor or element of rhetoric. They, they saw it as a a um, literal relationship with God. Um, that reflected their salvation or damnation. When Kennedy and Reagan use this rhetoric, they mean something much more individualistic and voluntaristic, which I would associate uh, with the idea of the creed, as you say, um, that each of us is created uh, in, in the image of God, um, that that includes uh, the possession of certain rights, and that any authority over us has to be justified to us, that we have to consent to it. You can translate that into a covenantal idiom, um, but I think it's actually uh, a different argument in important ways. So I, I, I see um, Kennedy uh, and Reagan much more as exponents of a creedal conception of American identity, even though they, they did borrow um, rhetoric uh, and, and stories from the covenantal tradition. And that underscores your prior point about the cumulative side of this and perhaps the relative uh, parts of that admixture change over time or in the hands of different political leaders. Yes, that's uh, that, that, that's right. Um, and my, my suggestion in the book um, isn't that any of these visions of national identity are bad and should be thrown away. Um, on the contrary, I, I, I try to show um, that each of them has genuine appeal. Um, but I think it's important also to understand that they're not totally coherent um, and that there are tensions among them as well as points of overlap. Now, it's striking to at least this reader that each of the categories, the covenantal, the crucible, and the creedal, were emergent amid violence and war. How do you think about that? Well, you know, just uh, yesterday, I was preparing uh, to give a, a lecture uh, to my students at GW on uh, Montesquieu, uh, the French uh, legal and political theorist who was among the most important intellectual influences on the framers of the Constitution. Um, and Montesquieu has a, a remark um, that monarchies do well in, in peacetime um, because they have a sense of, of glory and grandeur um, that does not require a confrontation with enemies. But republics, he says, aren't like that. Um, republics, because of the greater freedom they tend to permit to individual citizens, always tend toward corruption 
Republican citizens, of course, I mean small R Republican citizens, not um, supporters of the Republican Party. Um, Republican Republican citizens uh, tend to pursue their own interests and to indulge themselves rather than upholding the law and pursuing the common good. And Montesquieu says uh, the the solution to this is is war or military rivalry. Um, for republics, it's important to have an enemy to keep them straight. Uh, and he uses um, the, the long rivalry of Athens with Sparta and Rome with Carthage as examples of this phenomenon. Uh, I think something similar is true uh, of the American Republic. Um, in periods of war and military competition, um, the imperative to cooperate in order to survive often imposes a, a sort of salutary discipline and helps people to see what they have in common um, in addition to all the things that pull them, uh, pull them apart. Uh, and in peacetime, American culture and politics tends to become more individualistic um, and diffuse. And I think that one of the things that's happening to us right now um, is that we take as normal the period that begins in about 1941 and extends through about the late 1960s, when the United States really was in a period of constant military mobilization first against uh, uh, Nazism and then against communism. And that created an unusual degree of solidarity and cohesion. And since that time, and maybe especially since 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've lacked that external discipline. And I think that helps explain um, why we, we seem uh, to find it so difficult to get along now um, when our parents and grandparents and even, even some of us today um, can remember a period when it seemed to be a little bit easier. Of course, many of these contemporary issues that you summarize so well have echoes a century ago in the early 1900s. And William James... I believe, was one of those who proposed a need for what he called a moral equivalent of war to try to accomplish that solidarity, that national purpose and unity without being pressed from external forces of war. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I understand um, what James was trying to do. And, and more generally, I think that if you are looking for precedents um, for our current political and social condition, the late 19th and early 20th centuries look a lot more like, like the present um, than the 1950s and 1960s do. Uh, and I, I wish those periods received more attention um, in educational and journalistic or, or political discussion. Um, but, that's, but that's an aside. Um, Unfortunately, I think there is no moral equivalent of war. Um, and in, in many ways, the whole political history of the 20th century has been a search for moral equivalents uh, to war. You know, we think of the war on poverty or the war on drugs and finally the war on terror. Um, and I think that each of those substitute wars has left us 
in, in, in important ways worse off than we were before. There's a lot of discussion about the decline of religion and the formalized religion and the identities that went along with that at the same time as our sense of national identity may also be declining. And people seem to be expressing individual identities to just an unimaginable extent because of technology um, as well as other things. Are you aware of any other nation now or in history with a comparable level of individually expressed identities? That's a great question. Um, and I, I, I must say that no, no, no other uh, nation comes comes to mind and a strong element of individualism is not definitive of the American character or American social traditions, but it is it is an important um, an important element uh, of them. Um, and part of the reason um, is simply that it's always been this way. Um, when Alexis de Tocqueville, the the great French uh, writer, visited the still young United States. Uh, in the 1820s, he was astonished not only by the religious diversity that he observed then, um, but also by its individualistic character. Um, it was inconceivable to him as as a Frenchman, um, where there was at that at that moment um, one uh, official church, and at different periods in subsequent French history, it merely served as a, a dominant church. That you could not only choose for yourself uh, what church or other religious community to attend, but that people were establishing, and as, as he thought, in, inventing whole new religious traditions um, and, and religious communities. So that individualistic, voluntaristic quality is not something new. Um, what is new, uh, I agree with you, is the, a technological condition that not only makes it easy to declare yourself uh, in all of your individual particularity and then to seek out people who agree with you, but also makes it easier for you to withdraw from the people that you live with uh, in, in person. Um, so in a certain way, we are becoming um, both more and, and less pluralistic at the same time, more pluralistic because there is an ever-expanding array of lifestyle and identity options, but less pluralistic because you can create a sort of bubble or chosen community uh, where you only have to live with or deal with or hear from people who already agree with you. And that's that's a very difficult situation to be in. Could one argue that the capacity to have these separate identities is dependent upon a shared national identity, at least insofar as other people are expected to respect those choices. Well, at a, at a certain at a certain point um, of diffusion or pluralism, um, common institutions really do break down, and the possibility of coherent 
government and administration um, begins to be foreclosed. And a lot of people are are worried about that right now. And I, I don't think that's a crazy thing to worry about. Um, that said, I don't think that we are there yet. And that's partly because when I compare today's conditions with those of the past, I, I look to periods like the early 20th century um, that look a lot more similar rather than the interlude of cohesion and solidarity in the middle of the 20th century, which I think was uh, exceptional um, and cannot be repeated. Um, but I also think that we have at our disposal uh, legal and institutional devices that can help us with this. Um, and one of the most important is federalism, which is, of course, built into the Constitution uh, and is supposed to allow different states to legislate um, in ways that reflect the different interests and preferences of their population. So I, I don't think um, that it's altogether um, an accident um, that we see both a proliferation of particular identities and increased political uh, polarization as we depend increasingly on the national government and especially on, on the executive branch, on the White House, um, to address the vast majority of our political problems. Um, that's, that's an expectation that um, our national government and especially uh, the, the presidency is just not set up uh, to meet. So let's say that a president had the good fortune and was so well informed that he or she knew to call in Samuel Goldman to say, uh, Professor Goldman, I am really concerned about national identity. I want to make sure that America is big enough and smart enough and looking forward enough to be able to have, say, Texas and California not only coexist, but prosper and make the whole country better. What does that mean for the leadership approach a president should seek to instill in the country today? So my, my advice would be somewhat counterintuitive. Um, so almost all recent presidents um, appeal to um, uh, unity and, and solidarity uh, in ways that are surprisingly similar. Um, for a piece I published recently uh, in, in Reason magazine, I looked at um, uh, President Biden and President Trump's inaugural addresses, and they actually say almost the same thing uh, about about these these matters, um, and it didn't work in in either case. Uh, as as we know, um, uh, President Trump was not particularly popular when he was elected. Uh, Biden was briefly a little bit more popular, but he seems to be descending uh, quickly to a comparable level of unpopularity. Um, so I, I would I would advise presidents not to pretend that there is more unity and cohesion than there than there really is, but rather to say, look, we disagree on a lot of things. Uh, and in a vast country with an enormous number of people, that's okay. As your president, I am going to focus on discharging a much more limited number of tasks, uh, which are outlined by the Constitution, that can only be managed from this office. 
And for the rest, I want you in your states and I want your representatives in Congress uh, to try to figure it out for themselves. Now, I'm not totally naive. I don't think that would work. Um, that would work overnight. Um, but we we have learned over recent decades that presidents cannot bring about cohesion and consensus merely by uttering magic magic words. Uh, so my instinct would be maybe to try a different strategy. One of the things I think a lot of people here, and this would go back, I could argue, uh, at least 30 years at this point, and certainly both of the legacy political parties, that when they talk about unity, they're generally talking about submission to their <laughs> point of view. Yes, that's it's right. not Whenever really respectful. That's right. When, when, when most people talk about unity, they mean everyone should agree with me. Uh, and that's, and that's obviously uh, not a sustainable uh, political situation, but it seems what we've been saddled with from who we're producing as president in recent years. Let me ask you this, Samuel Goldman. You seem, I think it's fair to say, uh, and this is not to overly simplify your very nuanced views, but just for discussion, you seem to be, like a lot of people, very uneasy with the concept of the term nationalism. And you seem to prefer, I believe you say you prefer, patriotism. The question I would have, and I'll take this as a question I will channel from our people a century ago that you referred to in the early 20th century, is, is patriotism enough? I mean, ultimately, nationalism has to have a concept that you're willing to die for other people, as Benedict Anderson and others would say, that you don't even know, but you share a national affiliation with them. Patriotism seems much less, somewhere closer to, you know, what's your favorite sports team and so on. How do you think about that? So I should say that these terms do not have fixed and agreed upon um, definitions. And one of the problems that I noticed um, in the discussions that that provoked this book um, is that often they were they were linguistic arguments. They were they were arguments about um, about definitions rather than about historical or institutional um, uh, practices. Um, so I wanted to kind of refocus away from a discussion of the meaning of words to a discussion of what we actually have done in the past um, and what we might do in the present. Uh, that said, um, uh, I, I do draw a distinction between nationalism um, and, and patriotism. Um, and for me, it's the difference between attachment to particular institutions uh, operating in a particular place and attachment to an idea of a people that has a fixed that has a fixed set of characteristics outside uh, the political institutions under which it lives. Um, so some people uh, call the the first version uh, patriotism or constitutional patriotism or sometimes civic nationalism. Um, I don't think it matters very much what word you use. What I do think matters um, is the the argument um, that what makes us Americans is citizenship and through citizenship participation in a shared 
political community rather than um, a set of uh, ethnic or religious characteristics that I, I think most people today um, would tend to downplay or, um, or reject, um, or a kind of um, homogeneous ancestral culture um, that uh, may have existed in some places at some points in, in the past, um, but I think is so attenuated today that it's no longer really a, a basis of, of unity. Um, instead, it tends to be a way of, of telling um, some Americans that they don't really belong, that they're not really American. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the documents that I am particularly fascinated by, and I'd be very interested in your thought on it, uh, and it's been neglected in the past century for various reasons, is Washington's farewell address. And one way to think about that, it's, of course, his political testament, and he had historical uh, antecedents to that. He doubtless looked to, as did Hamilton. But it seems to be not only an operating guide for the new government that they viewed as very fragile, or precarious is probably a more accurate word, but also it was an attempt to tell future statesmen and to set an example for how to set a national identity. What is your thought about that? Well, I, I think we we can always um, learn from Washington, um, and one of the things that's useful about Washington is to observe him as he's trying to navigate a course in effect between Hamilton and, and Jefferson, um, with Hamilton uh, representing a more comprehensive um, and, and cohesive understanding of what the American Republic should be and of the the American nation and Jefferson appealing famously to these more individualistic and and voluntarist um, voluntarist themes um, and Washington sitting with the two of them um, virtually at his side right at at his left and and his right um, is is trying to see the way between the excesses of each. Uh, the uh, excesses of each position. Um, and I think the the farewell address um, is only one of the places where he does that. It, it, it is um, drafted by Hamilton and has certain Hamilton themes. A good staff worker, and he knew how to write for his principal, uh, not just to express his own opinions. And as you know well, it was written over the course of years. He took these kinds of statements very seriously. And I don't think we should confuse uh, that situation with today where politicians routinely have other people draft their thoughts to a massive extent, to the extent to which they're almost disconnected. Like when you look at a translated film and you see a disconnect between the lips and what you're hearing, which I sense a lot with today's politicians, uh, Washington, that was not his era. No, they say that uh, Calvin Coolidge was the last president um, who really was the primary author 
of uh, all or most of his speeches. Um, and Coolidge himself has some interesting things to say about this uh, that I think have been forgotten, partly because he has the reputation as a silent cow, as a president who didn't say much. Um, he, he did say some things. Um, and his account of American national identity, which is in the idiom of, of the 1920s, also um, an attempt to steer a middle course nationalists and um, what we would today call liberal cosmopolitans. Um, there's a lot to be learned from that as well. Now, let's shift a little bit to your work as an educator and your own situation, because you're obviously uh, highly accomplished and you're doing important work. Are there significant matters relating to politics or political theory or American history about which you've changed your mind? That's that's a really that's a really great question. Um, I, I don't know if I would describe this as changing my mind, but it's something that I think I understand better now than I would have uh, in 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 the past, and it's becoming a more important element um, of my my teaching and and my thinking um, about politics. And that's the importance of political uh, political parties. Um, so um, parties, of course, don't appear in the written constitution. Um, and the framers of the constitution um, were at minimum skeptical of organized parties. I think that skepticism can be exaggerated. Uh, but they, they saw parties at least as a danger. Um, but parties emerged very quickly already by the 1790s. There are um, organized political parties and became really the dominant feature of American politics in um, the 20th century. Uh, the role of parties has been reduced today um, uh, in ways that I think are mostly are mostly bad. But um, what this what this all amounts to. Um, is that I, I've come to think um, that the unwritten portions of the Constitution are just as important as the written ones, um, and that the written Constitution is in many ways derivative of its many predecessors. And in, in the Federalist, um, Madison and, and Hamilton discuss um, the institutions and uh, the historical cases that they have in mind. Um, but the truly original features of the American political tradition um, come from outside the written constitution. Um, and I, I sometimes think, and I'm probably guilty of this, that we spend uh, a little bit too much time, or at least give disproportionate emphasis to what happened in Philadelphia in 1787, um, and not enough to what followed from that uh, over the decades and centuries to come. And of course, one reason it's so durable is because they didn't try to spell out every single thing in writing. But let, let's ask a question, if I could follow up on that before you respond to that. Um, you know, both Washington and Adams, and they were particularly responding to the two-party politics dysfunction of England in the 1700s. 
gave a number of warnings against an entrenched two-party system. To what extent in our failure to heed that and the evolution of our system where the duopoly has become entrenched and backed by a massive range of special interests that in turn reflect oligarchic powers. I know I'm saying a lot of things there at once, but uh, to what extent has that accentuated the divisions that are breaking into our national unity? Are they actually accentuating it or making it worse than it would be otherwise? So I, I again, have a, a counterintuitive and maybe unpopular view of this. I, I think our problem is not that the parties are too strong, um, but rather that the parties are too weak. So you're right that the two-party system is is built into our institutions um, in all sorts in all sorts of ways, um, including. Um, uh, legal privileges. Uh, Democrats and Republicans in many states are automatically on the ballot. It can be quite difficult uh, for third parties uh, to find a place on, on the ballot. But at the same time, uh, parties have lost much of the ability they had in the past to select their own candidates and to influence the behavior of those candidates uh, when in office. Um, and I mean things like uh, the adoption of, of primaries um, and especially over open primaries uh, where anyone uh, can vote to select uh, a party's candidate even if they are not a registered member of that party and also restrictions on, um, on campaign finance. Uh, so I, I think that in a way we have the, wor the worst of both worlds now, um, which is that we've entrenched the dominance of two parties, but we also don't really let them operate like parties as that would have been understood until the fairly recent past. Um, and the result is that they've degenerated into becoming, in effect, brands that can be hijacked by individual candidates who are pursuing their, their own interests and their own agenda um, with very little concern for the other members of their party who are supposed to cooperate with them um, and to help them. Um, and of course, the, the nomination um, of Trump was an example of this. But the same thing almost happened uh, to the Democrats um, with the success of Bernie Sanders. So um, you asked me a moment ago what I would advise uh, a, a president to say. Um, if I were advising uh, Congress um, or state legislators, um, I, I would encourage them to look for ways to restore some of the control that parties have over their own brands and to increase their ability to influence the behavior of their members so that they can prevent, present voters with a coherent and meaningful choice. Well, one, uh, rather, rather than simply the um, emotional identification, which is the main connection of most of us to one party or the other, or negative affiliation at this point. Right. Uh, and, yes, that's right. But but the other problem that would have to be addressed, it would seem to me, is that if you wanted stronger parties, and I, I think those are credible arguments, you'd also have to have the system become more competitive. I mean, it used to be that third parties would cause resets in one or both of the two dominant parties. As a practical matter, that has ceased. And so we are floating in this place where more and more voters, and I'll declare interest, I'm one of them, 
are very much independent and not just like a little bit. I feel absolutely unrepresented by these two parties and I'm angry about it and I'm looking for ways to change this system, but we are blocked out by a whole series of legal and regulatory mechanisms that these two parties control and by which they limit competition, by which their interest group constituents are dominant and static. And I think the whole country is suffering. What do you think? Yeah, I'm 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 sympathetic um, to those concerns, and I I feel them myself um, in in many ways. Um, I I think though that some of the reforms that I've I've been describing probably too briefly would actually help people in that position, um, and the reason is that the dominant actors. Um, in the parties today um, are, are, are primary voters, um, and in states with, with open parties, primary voters who aren't even attached to that party. Um, I think more restrictive institutions would make it possible, as, as it was in the past, for people who want to work inside one party or the other to reform it over the long term to do that. Um, and that's part of the way that it's been possible uh, for the two major parties to um, to adapt. So you don't see a significance to the role, say, of the 1912 insurgency by Theodore Roosevelt that helped recalibrate the parties? That's or the 1948 uh, Dixiecrats or the 1968 McCarthy and Wallace challenges. Right. Those are things today that they're basically killing off. Is yeah, that, does well, that I matter mean, in your view or not? No, it, it, it does matter. But I think we, we have to look um, at what happened in each of those in each of those cases, because it seems to me they have different they have different lessons. So the the Theodore Roosevelt um, 1912 progressive campaign um, was an attempt to influence the Republican Party. Uh, in, a, in a more um, progressive and nationalist direction. Um, paradoxically, it had, it had the opposite effect. Um, uh, before 1912, you wouldn't really have been able to say which was the, the progressive party and which the conservative party, so to speak, um, uh, even as those terms were understood at the time. Um, what the failure of Roosevelt's campaign did was drive many of his supporters out of the Republican Party and into the Democratic Party, yeah. uh, where some of them turned up again later um, as precursors and supporters of, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, a decade a decade later. Um, so sometimes these, these movements can have um, unintended results. And you, you, you can read 1912 as Theodore Roosevelt's attempt to kill the Republican Party, or at least to kill the Republican Party that, that he wanted it, it to become. Um, looking forward uh, more than 50 years later, if you look at the... Um, uh, the various insurgencies in the Democratic Party um, that led to rewriting many of the um, internal party rules at the 1972 uh, convention um, that nominated McGovern. 
the people who did that in the name of a more inclusive uh, and liberal party ended up undermining themselves in certain ways because they lost the ability to influence the direction of, of the party uh, moving, moving forward. Um, so I, I agree that these are crucial moments and there are lessons to be learned um, from from each of them. Um, but I don't think I don't think they're all the same lesson. Um, and it seems to me, just speaking very, very generally, um, that people who have worked within one of the existing parties have a better record of success uh, than those who have pursued third party alternatives. Well, Samuel Goldman, thank you. You have been a provocative and fascinating guest. Your book, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division, is something everyone should read. I think it points to a lot of good directions for the future, and I hope we'll have you back in the future. I hope to be back, and I'm grateful for the invitation. It's been a, pro it's been a pleasure. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for a few and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, servetolead.com or support us at Substack. This time, take care, be strong and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.